Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Courtney Brown, chiropractor, Brooklyn Nets. This is what she took away from reconditioning. Being able to understand how to apply the information from assessment to movement. Reconditioning has been a weak point in my practice, but after completing R1 Foundations, I feel better prepared to bridge the gap and confidently apply the techniques to my athletes. Thank you. Pascal Guerrero team physical therapist for the Philadelphia 76ers. It's been revolutionary to say the least. From the mindfulness component to the methodological approach of movement assessment, it has installed a new fire and appreciation for what I do on a daily basis, but with a new twist now. Thank you sincerely from my heart. This is just a small sample of people who've taken R1 Foundation and work at the highest levels of performance. But it really is a course for anybody who wants to get better at what they do in terms of taking care of their clients from point A to point Z or Z if you're an American listening. At the end of the day, reconditioning is an operating system for bringing the worlds of therapy and performance together under the operating paradigm of applied neurology. It blends these systems and brings them all together and allows you to practice and to operate in both worlds. So whether you're a therapist or a performance practitioner, it upgrades your capacity in these different areas so that you really can manage and deal with situations that are transcending from injury to performance and return to sport. So we have a live course coming up in Montreal, November 5th, 6th, and then another live one, November 19th, 20th for R1 Foundations in Victoria, BC. Additionally, we begin our new cycle of eight-week learning labs for R1, R2, and a hybrid program for our R3 course that has uh, learning labs before and after the course. The next R1 we're delivering eight weeks begins December 1st. The next R2 begins February 2nd. And the next time we're delivering an R3 live and in person is April 1st. But keep in mind there are three dates before that are online and three dates afterwards for preparation. This is an extraordinary program. You can get in and buy the R Pro series and get all three courses and save $500 if you want to and start uh, year 2023 off right with your practice and changing your practice, becoming more powerful, creating better solutions for your clients and really living a more fulfilling and productive life as a practitioner. So we invite you to take a look at all the different programs where you deliver at reconditioninghq.com today. Our main sponsor, Matrix Fitness, has recently launched its high school and collegiate development program. Customized to each group, these are two-hour workshops designed to support the busy teacher and coach in implementing modern training principles. These workshops are funded by Matrix and designed to address three areas. Simple, not easy, implementing strength conditioning in high school or collegiate settings improving multi-directional movement and coordination, and finally, putting the fun back into fundamentals, simplifying physical education in the weight room for all. Each workshop includes notes, session samples, and templates to help support implementation, as well as equipment and space assessment and budget allocation ideas to support programming. The workshops are all led by Wayne Burke. He's a former pro lacrosse athlete and 23-year veteran of training athletes of all ages. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness equipment supplying and supporting organizations and athletes of all sizes and levels in their pursuit of improved performance. If you want more information on this program, then contact Wayne Burke, B-U-R-K-E, at matrixfitness.com. And if you want more information about the products and programs of Matrix Fitness, hit up matrixfitness.com today. Now that we've taken care of those that take care of us, on to the podcast.
Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Brandon Marcello. Brandon is the Chief Innovation Officer for JAG Consulting. He drives forward thinking and cutting edge strategies across a variety of human performance portfolios. With over 25 years of experience in the performance enhancement industry and extensive involvement in both the applied and research worlds, he has implemented successful high performance training programs for professional, Olympic, and collegiate athletes. Brandon is currently the lead human performance advisor for the U.S. Army Combat Capabilities Development Command Center, DEVCOM, optimizing the human weapons system effort. Prior to his work with JAG, Brandon served as the Director of Sports Performance at Stanford University for seven years, and before his work at Stanford, he served as the Director of Performance for USA Softball. In the late 90s, Marcello was a performance specialist at the International Performance Institute of the IMG Academies, when in 1999, he was approached by Mark Verstegen to join him to help create EXOS, formerly Athletes Performance, a world-class training facility for professionals in uh, and elite athletes. A recognized author, researcher, and international presenter, he routinely speaks around the world on a number of topics pertaining to elite level training and performance. He is also, above all his accomplishments, a father and husband. I am honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I get to, this is a sort of a selfish uh, endeavor on my part because I get to talk to really great human beings like yourself have done some especially special things. And it's always nice when I get to have the chance to chat and get an hour with a guy like yourself who's done so many different things. It's great for the listener to hear how you circuitously wound your way through all that and and became you today. And and sometimes when we are at this point in our careers, um, we don't always reflect back on how it all how how it all happened. So I want to go back. Where where were you sort of born and raised and what were you kind of dreaming about being when you were little, Brandon? So I was born in Warwick, Rhode Island. Okay. Uh, my family is from the New England area. Still have tons of family up there. Um, as a matter of fact, when I flew in to perform better Providence, um, I met my cousin, Tom, who's a police officer at the Providence airport, canine officer. So we have tons <laughs> cool. of family up there. I run where he's right waiting at the gate for me. So we got to catch up, but yeah, uh, born in Warwick, Rhode Island. Um, my family moved to Florida when I was three and was kind enough to take me with them. <laughs> so nice. uh, I used to say I moved to Florida when I was three and I'm like, no, my family moved to Florida and took me with them. And I grew up in Sarasota, Florida. Okay. Um, and yeah, just a regular kid for the most part, okay. played around, played outside, was in the era of, you know, leave the house. Don't come back until it's dark or unless you're <laughs> some missing a limb or something like that. Um, yeah. And, and grew up down there and, you know, my mom was a teacher, which okay. ties into kind of what I do now coaching or what I did. Uh, and my dad was an actor. Really? Wow. Uh, yeah. He okay. was a stage actor and uh, director and he was an artistic director for one of the professional theaters in town. And, um, yeah, that's kind of where I grew up I mean, and, and my older sister, who's five years older than me. So It's kind of wacky. I was just saying to uh, the last person I was speaking to, and it happens quite frequently that people in the human performance industry, for whatever reason, one of their parents tends to be a teacher, which is kind of interesting. So how did your mom being a teacher sort of reflect upon your uh, desire to be more academic or your uh, avoidance of being more academic dependent right. on right. that? Um, you know, what, what's interesting is that um, I had a rough schooling experience. Uh, I did not do well in traditional school. Mm. And the reason I struggled was found out later on. Um, I needed glasses. Mm. So I couldn't see the board. So uh, I had a very difficult time, which was not identified until like the third grade. Um, where I was getting migraines and getting headaches and um, struggling in class. And, and my third grade teacher, who is still a very good friend of ours, uh, my mom's best friend, um, said, I think we need to get him. He's struggling here. Hmm. So took me in, got glasses, and that helped immensely. Um, but what I learned was that um, through my, my elementary school experience, um, I, 
this was instilled in me at a very early age. Education is very important. Um, I didn't always like educators. Mm. And maybe there was some, because my third grade teacher picked it up, what happened in second and first grade, right? Like, mm. it, looking back, probably they were, you know, not giving me good grades, and they won't, but they weren't trying to figure out why. Right. It was just like, okay, Brandon got a C, Brandon got a D, or whatever it is, unsatisfactory, whatever they used, right? Mm. So... Um, I understood the importance of education, probably because my mom was a teacher. Um, you know, they, they, my parents instilled that education was very important. But again, I think there's a distinct difference between educators and education. Mm-hmm. I held my mom in very high regard. She was an educator. Um, but yeah, there was just, there was something that wasn't right with educators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe that that, that kind of instilled me. I was, I was ref, actually just reflecting on my morning run. My, my mantra with everything I do is there's always a better way. Mm. I don't know what that way is, but there's always a better way. And I think when, when people give up, when people just make assumptions, when people judge, you're giving up, you're not looking for that better way. Right. Mm. And I think that's where some of that lies in. And maybe that pushed me to kind of where I am today, right? right. To coach and figure out, you know, human performance. There's a better way of optimizing a human. There's a mm-hmm. better way. I don't know what it is, but there's a better way. And then somebody will come up with another better way, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But I think that's kind of where a lot of that derived from maybe. Do you, do you remember when you, you know, kind of first put glasses on what it changed in you? Did it, did, did you feel all, all of a sudden liberated to... To see differently in some sense? <laughs> yeah, no pun intended, right? No, I, yeah. I actually remember the day very well. Um, yeah, I, I remember going to the eye doctor. I remember getting glasses, picking them out. I remember where it was. I remember the office. I remember it all very, very distinctly, very vividly. Wow. I remember what I had for dinner that night. <laughs> like, I remember, I remember going to school the very next day with glasses on. Um, but what I found out through the ophthalmologist was that, and I didn't know that my parents shared this with me later on. I, I learned to read not by recognizing letters. I learned to read by shapes of the word because wow. I couldn't see letters. So I kind of had to teach myself how to read again um, because I was kind of looking at letter, looking at words and like shapes. Oh, that mm-hmm. le- that's South. That mm-hmm. word is South. Oh, okay. Hi, can you spell it? No, I can tell you what it looks like. Hmm. so That's yeah it was cool. kind of one of those things where yeah it's nice to be able to see right i still wear glasses <laughs> to this day um, wake up yeah. Yeah. how did your father being an actor influence you or did it at all it, it, oh my gosh no, sort of- huge influence um it's one of those things where your father has a decision to make in life and that is he can either choose to parent you like his father did mm-hmm. or choose to parent you like he believes you should be parented, like he wanted to be parented. Mm-hmm. And fortunately he chose the latter, mm-hmm. right? Um, being an actor at his, in his era, in his age, uh, people laughed at him. That's not a serious profession. Right. Why don't you do something real with your life? That, and it wasn't because they were angry or upset with him. It was just because they didn't think that was a way you could make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, he was sort of the black sheep of the family. So his mantra to my sister and myself, I don't care what you choose to do in life, I will support you. If you want to be a garbage man, I will support you. If you want to be an attorney, I will support you. If you mm-hmm. want to be a stay-at-home dad, I will support you. I don't care what it is. I got your back. Mm-hmm. Which was nice, mm-hmm. right? To have that. So to always know that, you know, he had your back and he will support you and help you in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, that that was that's a huge part of it. And you know, one of the things I think that was really helpful um growing up around a dad who was in the theater was I would go to work with him and I got involved in the theater myself. Okay. And I think it really allowed me to take feedback really, really well. Mm. 
Um, I don't know your familiarity with the theater, but after every rehearsal, the whole cast and crew go into the, the auditorium or in the house where the seating is and the director stands up and gives you what's called notes. Hmm. Scott, you did a great job with this scene. Just make sure you don't cross in front of this person. Make sure you cross behind them, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, lighting guys, that cue was a little bit late coming in there. Make sure we get that a little bit faster so the timing works seamlessly, right? Uh, you know, it's not adversarial. It's not. It's just giving you your notes. Hmm. How can I direct you as a director to make sure the performance is doing what it needs to be and, and getting the best out of all of our actors and, and cast and crew? Right. Um, and being able to receive that type of criticism early on and listening to that and accepting it as everybody accepted it, um, I think helped mm-hmm. right, with anything, with anything, any type of, any type of feedback or criticism, constructive or otherwise. I love that observation because one of the things I've noticed, uh, you know, in my lifetime of this profession is our profession tends not to be like that very good, like don't receive feedback very well. Um, and one of my favorite television shows actually is the voice and when i watch the show i'm always intrigued as to you know the judges will give them feedback and they're always very receptive and very empowered by it but it's like we don't do that in our industry very well and it's kind of fascinating so obviously i want to unpack that influence on you and how it's allowed you to grow over time um but before we do that so how do you how do you discover or decide to do what you do in your undergrad and and where do you go um, I started out as a theater major. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I actually have a degree in theater design and technology. So what I realized, and this is kind of interesting, I think <clears throat> I didn't like to be on stage. I tried it. Didn't like it. Mm. Okay. I could do it. Didn't want to do it. Mm. I liked behind the scenes. I liked the production side the set design, the lighting design, the makeup, the costume design, the things that enhanced the performance, things that enhanced the actors, very much like I do now. Mm -hmm. What are the things that enhance the athlete, enhance the the military operator, enhance the human? Let them be on stage. I'll work behind the scenes quietly and do my thing. I still get my name in the program. Fine. (laughs) But, you know. Yeah. uh, so I started in theater design technology um, because that's what I did all through high school. I worked in local theaters. Hmm. Um, so I have a degree in theater design technology. I have a minor in it because I transferred. I got out of that. Um, and why? why did you, why did you get uh, out? I, I found interest in else, elsewhere. Okay. I was like, okay, I'm in college. What other courses? There's got to be other things out here. There has to be a better way. There has to be better, other options that I can learn about. So you know how you take these other classes. And um, I, I was theater. I was education. So I went into um, uh, business education. And I'm like, gosh, I don't like business classes. I'm not going to do this. I went into history education because I liked history. But I'm like, yeah, I don't think this is for me. I took an athletic training class, right? And I was like, this is interesting. I kind of like this, but I don't really like, like if I'm going to go this route, I'd rather go to medical school, but I don't want to do that. And then I took this course called exercise physiology. <clears throat> and I fell in love with it. Wow. I was like, this is amazing. This is like so cool. I got good grades in it. I loved it. Um, it was yeah, it was, it was amazing. And um, I went and met with the teacher of the class who was the advisor. And I said, his name was Dr. Shepard. And I said, what can you do with this? I said, I like it, but I don't know what you can do with it. And he goes, Brandon, you can do, you can go into corporate wellness, corporate health. And I asked him what that was. And he said, you know, just, you know, fitness, corporate wellness, making sure people in the company are healthy and fit. And I'm like, no, oh, cat, it doesn't sound fun to me. <laughs> he goes, or you can do cardiac rehab. And I said, well, okay, what's that? And he goes, you know, helping people who have cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular surgery, rehab them back in like, a, you know, an exercise lab setting. I'm like, and I'm like, so that's it. He goes, yeah, that's it. I'm like, okay. Neither of those sound appealing, but me, I'm like, there's got to be a door number three. <laughs> There has to be another option. What is it? So I stuck it out 
And I ended up doing an internship in um, training athletes down here in Florida. Okay. And that's where I stuck with that. Like, I was like, okay, this is going to be my major. I'm going to do exercise science. Hmm. Um, And that's kind of how I landed in it, not knowing what you could do with it, but knowing that I'll figure out something because I like it. Wow. That's a really interesting experimentation sort of image in what you did in your undergrad. It's not usual. It's quite unusual that people kind of hunt and pack around. Well, because usually you're kind of influenced to go get that degree and now you're going to do something with it afterwards. What, what informed you in the background of your mind or your experience or, or whatever it was that this was okay to do? Like it's okay for me to experiment and pop around and not necessarily be diligently focused on something until I find it. Cause again, it's not the usual. So what was informing you that this was okay? Um, I think it was, again, it's the education, right? Right. It's like, you can become educated in anything. And I was in a place that could teach me anything mm-hmm. and I could pick a class about anything. Mm. Um, and that was interesting to me, mm. right? Like here are all the science courses. What are these? This is interesting. This is not interesting. Um, did it slow down my degree seeking process? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But I was able to kind of, you know, look around and, mm-hmm. and yeah, experience things. Right. Almost like, you know, um, Steve Jobs, I read one of his books one time. He used to drop in on classes. Same type of thing. He would drop mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. and learn those things. Um, yeah, well, I really enjoyed talking with David Epstein a little while ago about his book yeah. Range and sort of this whole idea of kind of yes. exploring so many different things and kind of recognizing who you are and what kind of drives you um, on that vein. Like what you said, you know, you really liked it. Well, what did you fall in love with with exercise fizz that you hadn't necessarily fallen in love with other things at that point? I think I was fascinated. There was a, there was a fascination I had no idea I had with the human body mm. and physiology. Um, what was interesting is the semester before that, I took that exercise physiology class. I took human anatomy. And this goes back to the education educators piece again. Uh, I got an F in anatomy when I took wow. it that semester. Um, and I'll never forget the teacher. The very first day she said, I'm here to weed you out. <laughs> right? Classic. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not here to teach you. I'm not here to educate you. I'm here to weed you out. Mm. And that she did. I got an F in the class. Um, fast forward to grad school. And I'm the guy teaching anatomy and physiology. Wow. Right. Cool. And I made that decision, like my dad. Am I going to teach it like she did? Or am I going to teach it a different way? Right. And I chose to teach it a different way. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That reminds me of uh, after my undergrad, I was working at a university, and I decided for fun just to take financial accounting. And I came in the class, and the teacher right off the hop says, half of you won't be here by the middle of the semester. And I'm pounding. I'm just doing this for fun. I'm like, he goes, this is the hardest course in in all of uh, finance and stuff. And I'm like, okay. So I just, you know, but I was there for different reasons than the kids. So, but he was right by the midterm. (laughs) I'm like looking around, where did everybody go? (laughs) It's kind of crazy. So your internship um, is, is that at the, um, at the Institute that you end up being at, or is that in another facility? And then how do you sort of find yourself at the Institute? Yeah, so that was actually down there. Okay. Um, and then um, I went away to grad school after that, did my master's degree. So two years doing that. And then I ended up going back there and working full time. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And it was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to work with pro athletes. I want to train pro athletes, Olympians. And this is, this is it. This is amazing. Mm. Um, yeah. And again, behind the scenes, right. Fell in love with it and trying to figure out the better ways and the best ways. And I got really lucky to have some, some pretty good mentors, mm. um, along the way there that, like, yeah, so very, very fortunate. I think there's like a, a lot of luck there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, you're, uh, I'd love for the listener to hear this part of the story. Um, 
because you're in this kind of period of time there. And then when you move to Arizona with Mark, where this kind of privatization model of performance starts to actually, you know, grow and there's kind of this petri dish of okay let's see if this works you know prior to that it was mostly school centric um driven what what informed you that this was and the people who were creating it that this was something that could really work and that we were you were going to able to make a business out of business model out of it as you watched it grow well again i think it goes back to that mantra of there's a better way right Right. And this was a better way of approaching how we train and how we improve humans. Hmm. And um, like you said, there was not much out there then. There was like you could count the private facilities in the country on one hand. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Now there's that many private facilities on a on a block. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there wasn't much competition uh, I think we were at the right time, at the right place, in the right city, had the right people helping us. Um, yeah, and and believed in it. That's the mm-hmm. other thing, right? And I mean, a lot of people believe in their businesses and they fail. But, you know, I think it was quite apparent there was a need for this, mm-hmm. um, this higher level of training, especially the way, you know, combine prep was taking off and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so we were I'm assu- assuming that's where you met Mark. Um, yeah, we met Mark, Mark at IPI. Yep, right. I was for him right. there. Because um, he took over as a director there. Um, there was a whole host of us working there. And uh, he, uh, one day, he grabbed me off to the side and said, hey, can we go get some, you know, pizza down the road? Calzones was Calzones, actually. And went down there and he said, hey, would you be interested in, in doing this? Hmm coming out with me and helping me stand this thing up. Mm. Sure. So there was a a few late night meetings after work. um, And then he left and then I left. And then, you know, it was the two of us, Mark and I and Mark's wife, and we were running the business out of his condo. Um, We had stuff stacked in his garage and training athletes wherever we could. Right. We had some, um, we're using some of the facilities at Arizona state uh, to train some of the athletes. And that's kind wow. of what we were doing. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Um, at that point in your sort of journey, when did, when do you encounter your now wife? Are you, uh, do you bounce into her in school or after school? Are you a single guy going through all of this? What's... Yeah, I'm a single guy going through all this. I didn't meet okay. Ben until uh, way later on. Okay. Well, I was at Stanford. Actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So, well, that allowed you to float around and do lots of different things, I guess, in some sense. Yeah, it did. It, it yeah. did. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. So that was much, that was probably 2012 ish, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was funny to, when I talked to Mark a while back and he was talking about the starting of uh, uh, athletes' performance, you know. I was surprised to find out that he was like 29 when he started at 2930. And I'm like, wow, that's, that was quite the, quite the business to try to create at that age without sort of like uh, sort of a, a proof of concept sort of behind it in some sense. So uh, tell the listener about those early days, like obviously garage, how, when does it actually become a space that you guys move into and how, how does all that roll for you? What's, what's the experience like and how does it shape you? quick break here we'll be back with our guest more and more these days you're seeing organizations engage reconditioning practitioners to operate that continuum from injury to performance it's no longer good enough just to be able to manage performance solutions or to manage injuries you need to be able to do the whole continuum We're seeing organizations like the Brooklyn Nets, the Golden State Warriors, the Montreal Canadiens, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Edmonton Oilers, and the list goes on of performance organizations that are hiring people who are reconditioning grads. And then there are organizations um, in the NFL and Major League Baseball and soccer and 
pro football in Europe that are hiring professionals that have either reconditioning or performance therapy type background where they can manage that continuum and they can manage more than just one thing. They can manage many things. It's important to educate yourself and reconditioning provides you that complete continuum, that complete system that organizes, brings together, and defines how to use applied neurology therapy and performance systems to get the best out of the athletes and clients that we work with on a daily basis. You're even seeing more and more clinics in different places in North America hire and engage reconditioning style practitioners, bringing in our organization to educate entire staffs. It's just the the thing that's changing the dynamic of the world of human performance. So get after it. Head to reconditioninghq.com today and check out our courses. What do universities Colleges, municipalities, first responders, hotel guests, athletes, gym owners, rehab specialists, condo developers, and over 3,500 homes in Canada have in common. They all use Matrix Fitness Equipment to support their physical activity needs. Matrix is a global brand that recently celebrated its 20th anniversary and can be found in most local facilities in your community. For more information on how Matrix can support your goals, go to matrixfitness.com today. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah, so um, it was, yeah, Mark was 29 29, 30 by the time we moved out there. His birthday is June 9th, 1969. Um, And um, yeah, I was 26 when I moved out. And uh, yeah, it was interesting, right? Um, We were, again, we had the the, the condo which we ran the business out of, and they were using the north end zone locker room of the Sun Devil Stadium, which was like the Stanley, it was a Cardinals locker room and it was really bad. It was what they used in uh, Jerry Maguire, if you can see, they used it in the movie. Like a, a cinder block facility. One, the visiting, the home team locker room was like our weight room. The visiting team locker room was like ESD and rehab. Um, there was an office there that we had used. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting space. Um, but it, it got the job done. And then we would go over to the turf fields and drive over and do our speed work over there. Um, yeah. And then, then after that football season came, we had to leave. So there was a plot of, there was an old shopping plaza, which was kind of not being used anymore that Arizona state owned. And because we had a public private partnership with the university, we we're going to build on their land. And we were working on the facility at that time, building it. We went into what we call the Staples Center. I called it that because it was an old Staples office supply store. <laughs> we called it, I called it the Staples Center. And, like, you know, we had, like, parchment paper covering the windows so nobody could see in. And, you know, like, the automatic doors that opened up when you'd walk up to it. And it was very cavernous. And we had stuff just set up in there and um, while the facility was being built. And then once the facility was built, uh, on campus, we moved in. Um, there was a lot of, you know, yeah, all over. What the was place. what was that first day mo- moment like? Because that was quite the facility in its time. It was. It, it was still great. is. If you look yeah. back at what it looked like, it's quite well, an impressive space. Well, it was funny because when we had our open house, like the pool was clear and blue, but there was no pool equipment. Actually, that hadn't been put in yet. So we had just filled it up and dumped a ton of chlorine in there to make it look sparkling and blue. But there was like nothing behind it. It's like, you know, rolling out like this new concept car where there's no engine. Like, don't look under there. Right. Uh, yeah, Pretty funny. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and also you you were kind of that whole thing was a bit of ahead of its time and having sort of your clinical model and your gym space all sort of homogenized and i always remember walking into that space and seeing the work and rest sort of moniker on the walls and things so what did what did that experience shape in you as for what you have become since like how did it how did it configure your and solidify your thinking process around there's a better way well, I, I think that was, a, we just, just continue to grow it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like knowing that you think, you know, okay, this is the best way right now, but knowing tomorrow there could be a better way. 
Mm-hmm. We just continue to do that. How can we model that and how can we make it better? Right. And, and one of the things that I really love that we did there then was early on, um, like after combine prep, um, Daryl Eto, who's my mentor, uh, Mark and I would all go in a room one night and, um, we would really criticize our methodology, mm-hmm. we would look at it and give it a good once over. And, um, we would look at it and say, can we make this better? Sometimes we'd make some changes. Sometimes we wouldn't, but it was the process of evaluating it. Mm-hmm. I think was the, was a great, was great at growing it mm. and making it better and trying to find that better way, mm. critically evaluating your own work. Right. What, um, excuse me, sorry. No, no worries. What, what precipitates your decision to move on from there and to go on to other things um, and, and to not stay there for a lifetime, so to speak? Yeah. So I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> and um, the, there is a recipe that I have found in life. And that, that recipe for me is I want to be valued. I want to be intellectually stimulated. Um and I want to be innovative. Hmm. And if any of those things starts to be losing, one of those recipes of the recipe starts to go, I need to satisfy that. And hmm. I think I, it was at AP, it was the intellectual curiosity. Hmm. Like I really went into a rut about getting better from an intellectual standpoint. And that's why I left to go get my PhD. Hmm. Right? It's like that pendulum just swung hard the other way. Right? Interesting. Um, yeah. So when did you establish that that sort of litmus test for what what you wanted to do? Um, those uh, probably uh, seven years ago. Okay, so then it was out. more then it was more intuitive in some sense yeah. that you just yeah. knew you were a little edgy, stir crazy, and you needed yeah. to move on to something else. Okay, yeah, but it. looking cool. back, that's really what it was. You know, really I looked cool. back, I, I did some soul searching at some point. I was like, yeah, this is why I did these things. Wow, so, yeah. And so you do your PhD and, um, how does that change you? Um, you know, the reason I did the PhD was to give me more doors to go through later on in my career. Right. Right. Um, if I wanted to consult, I could, people would consult with somebody with a master's degree, but they like PhDs better. Mm -hmm. Um, I could teach. Right. I can teach with a master's degree, but then I'd be competing against those with PhDs. Mm-hmm. So I could teach, don't have to. Um, I could research if I want, didn't want mm-hmm. to, but could. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's about having more options that mm-hmm. I otherwise couldn't do. Um, yeah. So while I was working on my PhD, I was also director of performance for USA Softball. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, working on a dissertation, writing a dissertation on buses and in different countries while we competed and got ready for the Olympics in 08. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you feel about when they pulled it from the Olympics and then eventually put it back for, but was that? uh, It didn't really impact me. I didn't really feel it that much. I felt bad for the athletes. Right. Um, Yeah. I felt really bad for the athletes um, who could no longer compete or had that uncertainty, you know, um, which is a shame, which is unfortunate, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. How are you defining your, as you're going through this process, are you sort of looking at the, the roles that you want to seek from the perspective of how they, um, trying to figure out how to explain bolt on to you to create a better you or are you or is there something you're trying to find that stimulates a thought process in you like going back to your sort of three pillars of of decision making what are what is guiding you in your decisions to go from there say to stanford and and saying you know i need to do this because i i've reached my point of of no return there yeah so um when I was doing my PhD, I had this idea that there's a better way of working college athletics, mm. better way of training athletes. And I created this big job description for a high performance director for a university. And this is back in 2005, maybe. And said, you need this type of facility. 
And I met with the athletic director, the Baylor athletic director, where I got my PhD in 2006. And I said, this is what I think needs to be done. And they were like, mm, yeah, okay. You know, nobody's really doing this. Um, there was a lack of interest for whatever reason. And I take, I take some of the blame on that because maybe I didn't tell a compelling enough story. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I do take, I'll take 50% of the blame. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then um, in 2006 or seven, uh, the Stanford job opened up for a director of sports performance. And I first one of its kind, and I read the job description. It was almost identical to the one that I wrote. And I'm like, if anybody's going to be able to want to do things differently, it's going to be this school. Who was the forward thinker that sort of created or recognized they needed to have that if it wasn't something that already existed? His name was Darren Nelson. Okay. Darren at the time, uh, Stanford grad. He was a senior associate athletic director. Okay. Darren played in the NFL, played football at Stanford, played in the NFL, (laughs) played for the Minnesota Vikings. Had a very, very good career, uh, but realized and through his career saw the disconnect between human performance, strength conditioning, sports medicine, blah, blah, blah. Knew there was other ways of improving performance and pushed hard for this role. And I submitted my application along with like 210 other people from what I understand, what Darren, Darren told me. And um, I didn't hear anything for a while because I, I put the application in when I was in Brazil with the USA team. We were at the Pan Am Games. And I didn't hear anything. And then one day I'm doing something and I get a phone call and it was Darren. And we started talking and he said, what interested you in this position? I said, I wrote a similar job description. He goes, can you send it to me? I said, yeah, I do right now. So I was on the phone with him and just hit, I, what's your email? And I forwarded it to him, went to my computer and forwarded it to him. And he started laughing. I said, what's so funny? He goes, it took us three weeks to write this. I should have just called you and I could have just done it right there. So That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, I ended up getting the job there. And um, the role was to be as innovative as possible and get Stanford into the, you know, the 20th century, even in the 21st century in terms of, Mm. you know, helping the student athletes there. And um, yeah, that's really cool. Cause I'm I'm interested too, cause a lot of times these roles, positions, et cetera, especially at the innovative front side of them, people kind of envision them, but then there's a lot of, especially at institutions, there's lots of strings that need to get pulled to make these things actually turn into what they're supposed to be. Were, were there di- initial disappointments or challenges that you didn't foresee or, or did things roll out relatively close to what you were hoping they would do? Um, when I got the job, I wrote a list of a hundred things that could possibly go wrong. <laughs> And all one ninety nine of them did. (laughs) No, all of them. Every single one of them happened. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so there was some. There was some. Yeah, it was not an easy road. uh, The first couple years, right? Trying to get a staff in place and change culture and change mindset and and roll out innovative products and or projects. Um, Yeah. Was was, there ever a point where you almost said, "No, this is I'm I'm I'm, this is too much." Um. I don't think there was a point like that. There were some frustrating points. Right. Um, but that probably didn't happen until way later on. Okay. Right? So you mentioned you met your wife at Stanford. How does that come well, about? Yeah, I was at Stanford. No, not at Stanford. I was at Stanford. I actually went on a continuing education. Uh, uh, went to Arizona to do some con ed, take a DNS course. Oh, okay. And um, I'm in DNSC. She was in DNSA, and I was there with one of our athletic trainers from Stanford, and he was like, hey, why don't we go out to dinner tonight? I'm like, I don't really feel like going out to dinner. He goes, come on, we'll go. I'm like, all right, I'll go. He twisted my arm. Um, So Jen was there at dinner. We met a bunch of people from the class there. 
we ended up sitting across from each other and we just started chatting. Neither of us were interested. We just had a nice conversation. Long story short, we kept in contact after that more and more and more and more. And yeah. Wow. Do you ever think about, do you ever think if you'd not gone out for dinner that night, what your life would be? I do. Yeah. (laughs) At sliding doors moments uh, in life. It is right. Like a small, small decision at the time leads to like this huge, probably change later on down the road. You mentioned before we came on that she's doing great things. Like what does she represent to you and your yin yang relationship? Is she kind of a counterpunch to you or similar ilk? What uh... she is, she's the family rock. Like she is, I, you just can't say enough about a person, right? Like exceptional mom, exceptional wife, exceptional colleague and Scott, she's just doing great things out there. Like she's, Mm -hmm. she worked in major league baseball for three years. Well, before that she was with the Padres. Then she was with the twins here in in Florida for three years, decided not to renew her contract um, consulting with the San Francisco giants this year and has picked up a lot of players who just have respected her and the results that she gets. She's in the rehab reconditioning space. Mm-hmm. Uh, she speaks on the perform better circuit as well. Um, and like, she is just so good at her craft mm, cool. like, and constantly trying to get better and constantly learning. And you can see the excitement in her eyes and making changes and helping these people. And, you know, um, yeah. And she's, one of the few people who can really show and illustrate the contribution to skill. Hmm. Not like strength guys, like, well, I get them stronger. So therefore they can jump higher. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a leap, right? Mm -hmm. I get it. But she's like, here's the change I'm making. Here's what the athlete feels. Here's what the coach is seeing. Here's what I found on my table test. And here's what the biomechanics data from the cameras has shown. And she's brought it all together to say, this is the change that I'm making. Here's how I can help you as a pitcher. Hmm. I can do this, which will allow you to do that, which can create this and allow make this easier. Hmm. I like the sound of her. I might have to Amazing. have her on the show at some point. 100%. She did a great <laughs> podcast with Mike Roberts and his, his uh, uh, performance podcast. Yeah. It's phenomenal. So, That's awesome. Very yeah. cool. And so uh, how do you ask her to marry you? Uh, it was pretty easy. We were in, um, uh, it wasn't easy, but we were in Venice, Italy. Um, just happened to be in Venice. And, um, yeah, I'm traveling with this ring in my, my pocket. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, we went to dinner and just asked her at dinner, you know, nothing like we're, we're both not like in this traditional sense on one knee type of thing. It was just very quiet, very calm, not drawing attention to us. Um, yeah. I thought you were going to tell me you were in one of those boats, you know, down there. Oh, gondola. No, we just to dinner, right? We were, we were, we were dinner That's awesome. and she knew something was up because I had two glasses of wine. <laughs> and she goes, he doesn't usually have two glasses of wine. You had to work yourself up to it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So when do you, when do you guys have start having kids? Uh, we start having kids in 2016, okay. right? So we got two young ones. We have a six-year-old and a three-year-old right now. Um, and so you just, waited a while. We did. We yeah. did. We were both focusing on careers. And, like, it's interesting, right? This is like um, you, you – I was having a conversation with my sister, who's like my consigliere, right? <laughs> she is like – yeah, we talk every day. Um, and – She's like, you know, Brandon, I, this was you, well, just before I met Jen, you know, she goes, you worked very hard to get your career to where it is, right? He goes, yes. I said, yeah. She goes, we have to do the same thing. If you want somebody in life, you also have to work at that. Um, so you have to do that. You have to put that out to the universe and you have to put that time out there and you have to give it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, huh, that makes a lot of sense. Right. That's mm-hmm. when I realized, okay, you do have to have a shift um, about that. And um, yeah, which was really cool. interesting. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah. But so obviously you start to um, 
get restless at Stanford after working through your hundred uh, things that could go wrong? And w- how do you get into the military piece? And how does that sort of exp- explore exploration yeah. occur for you? Um, so while I was at Stanford, um, some groups from the military would come out and visit. And like everything of mine, I'm very much an open book. What do you want? Who do you want to meet with? I'll set that up for you. And I would, you know, be a good host, right? Mm -hmm. So give them this, give them that. Hey, could you send us these programs? Sure. Here you go. Could you send us these plans? Yes. Here you go. Could I meet with your dietitian? Sure. Here you go. Um, And they reached out to me and were like, hey, would you want to do some consulting with us? I'm like, all right. What does that look like? So I started working on a project to um, examine. They want to know what is the sports world using to sense, understand, and portray human performance. And we will see if it's applicable for the military setting. So I'm like, okay, I can do that. Um, So that's what I did. I put together this trade study. I cast a wide net and said, here's what the sports world is using to sense performance, understand performance, portray human performance. There you go. And they liked it. Hmm. So I loved another job and another consulting gig and another consulting gig. Um, and then while I was doing this consulting, one of the companies that was utilizing me and leveraging me was a company called Jag. Hmm. And they were using my services. And then finally uh, their president and founder, Joe Gomes, who's also a former Exos guy. Right. I know the name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, says, why am I keep hiring you as a consultant? I just bring you on full time. Okay. <laughs> so we right. discussed what that looked like. I brought my military contracts with me. Um, and he goes, I'd love for you to lead up the innovation side of things. Mm. Cause you know, he's familiar with my work at Athletes performance and Exos and familiar with my work at Stanford and um, yeah, just doing things differently, finding the better way. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I'm going to read you your, um, I read from a book called the day you were born. It's an astrology meets numerology book that I've discovered years ago. I know the scientist in you will not have anything to do with this, but I have to read it anyway. So it's fun. Um, so you're a Scorpio four born November 13th, correct? Is that your November 13th? True. Okay. So uh, your purpose is to learn to use your strong sense of individualism to unite rather than keep you isolated and alone. Change your thoughts and you change your world. Norman Vincent Peale. The Scorpio 4 loves tension, change, and crisis. Fours have a strong need for excitement and desire for unity. They are catalysts in the lives of others and their own world goes through many changes. They take things to the limit and then miraculously a new point of view is achieved. They make great negotiators in intense and powerful situations. They need to be put on the edge. Danger is an attraction. In a relationship, this can be a disaster. The Scorpio 4 is restless and needs someone who can relate to them as they constantly evolve. They are great diplomats, able to see what diverse people have in common. If their spiritual side is missing, they may find themselves on the outside looking in. They need to guard against becoming isolated and alone. Solitude is good if it puts them in touch with their inner nature. It's not if it keeps them eating dinner with the evening news. To bring themselves into the mainstream of life requires the excess their desire to help those who need support you know that's interesting it reads a little bit like you actually from what i can gather so far so (laughs) the only the only like i don't like danger you don't like astrology (laughs) no no i don't like danger like i don't like oh you don't like danger okay i don't like danger like i'm not a yeah i'm very crisis averse Uh, i'm not a confrontational guy um, yeah, that's the only thing I would probably push back on. Mm. Um, we have some of the other things too, right? I'm an introvert, so yeah. I don't mind solitude so much. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. And I mean, you gotta, this too, like, I, I don't mind astrology. Like I've had my sister read my tarot cards before cause she's, <laughs> yeah, she's got like a sixth sense, but well, the the wacky story for me, the reason why I bought the book is I used to have, I say this, I tell this story a few times on the podcast, but I used to have the, my favorite saying is some men see things as they are and say why I dream things that never were and say why not. I always had this tape to the top of my computer. 
And so I found this book on the on the bookstore shelf after my second divorce, and I start reading it. And I flip to Sag Three, which is me, and I read the purpose, and I'm like, wow, that sounds very much like my spirit. And then there's always a quote, and the quote was that quote. No, that's freaking crazy. So I'm buying that's this. Amazing. Book. So now I read it to everybody for fun. But uh, you, you, um, you know, you, you are obviously somebody who innovates, crafts, creates, and continues to explore the possibilities. What's where is the human performance industry going in your opinion now? And what's the next horizon from your perspective that that we're now starting to really play in? Um, I think we're going to get really better at, um, I mean, this whole with wearables and, you know, continuous glucose monitoring and those things, I think we're going to get a really good understanding of what real time physiology looks like. Mm-hmm. It's going to be quite some time until we can unpack that, understand mm-hmm. what it means, but, um, that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Right? I see how can we leverage these things and now make training much more individualized and, and, and nuanced for the, the specific person rather than for the specific, for the whole group. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think that's kind of where we're going. Um, yeah. What's the biggest discovery you've had? in the last, say, five years of your work that you didn't really know before that, but in in the work that you've done, you've kind of gone, wow, I wish I'd known that 20 years ago. I mean, where do I begin with what I wish I knew 20 years ago, right? (laughs) Yeah. The stuff I'm learning from my wife and that she's been picking up, um, like, makes me question every program I ever written. Mm. Yeah. Yeah like really, really cool stuff. Like, oops. All right. Let me find in my phone and call this people and say, sorry, I should have mm-hmm. done this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Stuff I'm learning from her is just about just structure has mm-hmm. been really, really profound. Mm-hmm. What is it that you enjoy about the work you're doing now? What do you, what do you get into? What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, what gets me out of bed is probably my six-year-old or my three-year-old. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll have to rephrase the cat question. Then. <laughs> what inspires you after you get out of bed? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think the thing that inspires, I, like I'm just trying to find that better way. Mm. I know it's there. That's at least what I've always been about. Right. Like, that's why I keep saying it. It's just like some of these projects that I'm now kind of working on are just like things that nobody's done. Mm. And I like that. I like to do the things that nobody has done. Mm. Um, yeah, because I think it, and not because hey, I was the first one to do it because I think it then makes things better because people will now use that and iterate on that. It provokes mm. thought, mm. right? Like, you know, Henry Ford came up with a car, right? I'm not a Henry Ford fan at all, but using him, he came up with a car. Well, people iterated on it. It provoked thought, right? Mm-hmm. So now you have Audi and Mercedes and BMW and all these other things that people have iterated on that and made this like, oh, that's a cool feature or that's really neat or that's like innovative, right? Mm-hmm. Volvo or whatever. Um, it's like, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, oh, you, you know, great. He came with the first car, but like he's provoked thought, mm-hmm. right? And allowed other people to kind of use their creativity to find that next better way. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I try to do from a human performance standpoint. I want to provoke thought. Do you, do you think, do you think much about your call it a legacy in essence of what you did say at Stanford, when you look back at it, do you think, do you think of that in, in a positive way or, you know, or is it even a, a, a concept that you contemplate like your, the legacy proposition of the work that you do? I don't really consider, not so much the legacy, but I just want, you know, I've always been taught, I don't know who, instill this in me was just leave the place better than you found it. Mm. Right. Right. Um, and that's all I'm trying to do. Mm. Right. I'm just trying to make mm. sure it's, when I leave, it's better than how I found it. Mm. Um, and then what they do from it from there is that's up to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do is just try and, you know, I, I believe in this, I believe that I don't remember who said it, <laughs> If you can complete your life's work in your lifetime, it probably wasn't worth doing. <laughs> right? So it's like, That's I'm not funny. going to 
fix human performance, not in my lifetime. Right. But I can provoke some thoughts so people maybe way down the road can. That's all. Wow. That's that's very awesome. I like that. Yeah. What's um what's one thing about you that most people who know you don't know about you? Um uh, I'm private, very private. Okay. And I'm an introvert. So this is tough, right? There's a lot of things I share that a lot of people don't, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I don't, I'm very, very private. Yeah. Well, you have a very significant legacy, sir, and I appreciate you coming on and talking about the things that you've done and the work that you've done because it's shaped the industry in a very significant way, and it's good for people to hear your journey. And also, you know, what I took take away from this in listening to you, which I think is so important for the listener, is just there is no right way or right pathway it's the pathway of discovery which uh, you keep sort of re-exploring which i think is really cool about you that i've learned about you today appreciate it this has been fun thank you cool good i'm glad it was a good experience thanks for taking the time today sir appreciate it thank you yeah have a good day you too thanks for joining us today on leave your mark i hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.